Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 254. 254. This is the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson, and you are presumably you. I want to talk this time in this opening segment about Darwinism and human rights. Mankind is a logical being collectively. People can be illogical and inconsistent when it comes to individual behavior, But mankind collectively always lives out the implications of the of the premises that he holds. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, for example, that uh, what is the logical consequence of Darwinism? If there is no God, if uh, we can account for everything that we are by attributing it to time and chance, acting on matter, and once life once somehow something got across the uh, vast chasm between inorganic material and organic material, and matter started replicating in an alive sort of way, once that started happening and certain mutations uh, were favored, the, the, the mutations were all random, but the favored mutations favored survival. And so you have survival of the fittest, and we all get to the point where we are now. Here we are, right? Well, aside from uh, I'm not I'm not getting into the science of it. I'm not getting into the how reasonable the argument is on a philosophical or a theological basis. I I simply want to talk about the ethical implications. If there is no God, and we are just ugly bags of mostly water. If we are just meat, bones, and protoplasm, and the end product of so many blind years of blind evolution, then what does it mean to say that we have human rights? The Declaration of Independence, I think with a a strong instinct here, said that we were endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. But suppose there is no Creator. Suppose that we are just down here happening. Suppose we are just, suppose the human race is just the froth on the top of the waves. Suppose it's just, as Kansas told us, dust in the wind. Suppose that's the case. What respect for human rights? What do we, what do we mean human rights? Well, human rights would, at that instant, if there is no creator God who created us in his image, then all of the rights that we've inherited from a Christian past, a Christian civilization, would have to be moved over to the privilege, privileges column. We don't have rights anymore. We have privileges because God is the only one who gives rights. If there is no God above the state, then the state becomes God. And when the state becomes God, the state gives rights and the state can revoke rights. And the state does this because the state is made up of human beings. God, the Christian God, is immutable. He does not, there's no variation or shadow due to change with him. 
So consequently, when he grants rights to his creatures, what he grants, he grants forever. What he grants is our birthright. So if I have certain rights because God gave them to me, then I'm not going to wake up next Tuesday and find that those rights have been taken away from me because God, the the giver of rights, is unchanging. God is holy and he's immutable. That means what he gives is going to be holy and it's going to be unchanging. But if there is no God above the state, then the state is God. And the state that is God is a state that is made up of human beings. And human beings, unlike the God of the Bible, are unholy, and they change all the time. So, utterly mutable and unholy. That means the things that they give are going to change all the time. The the state as God is going to be an Indian giver. The state as God is going to give and take away and give and take away, give and take away. And that means the rights that they give are uh, rights inside of scare quotes, which means that they're privileges, which means that these privileges are rapidly diminishing. So consequently, if you want a society that recognizes human rights, then at a fundamental level, that society, that civil society, has to reject Darwinism. It's not possible for you to have a society that affirms atheistic Darwinism and at the same time stands for human rights. It's not, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. Always will be God. Continuing on with our podcast, episode 254, as we work through the words for various sins in the New Testament, we are studying hamartiology. Our next word is related to the previous one we studied last week and is entrope, or shame. E-N-T-R-O-P-E, entrope. There are only two instances of it. There are only two instances of it in Scripture. The first is in 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking about the fact that the Corinthians actually had lawsuits between members of the congregation, suits that were being brought before unbelieving civil magistrates. He says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 5, I speak to your shame. There our word is, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? So here's the, here's the deal. Paul's problem here was not that Christians had a property line dispute. That sort of thing is going to happen. Paul's problem is, and, and it's not that they wanted that property line dispute adjudicated. His problem was that they were taking this dispute, to a Christian on each side of the dispute, going in front of unbelievers, unbelieving judges, and asking them to hash it out. So if we postulated a Christian republic or a Christian commonwealth, let's just say England in uh, 1590, England in 1590, and let's say there was a property line dispute between two Christians. Now, would it have been a sin for them to take that property line dispute before the civil magistrate? No, because the law was Christian, the society was Christian, the judge was Christian, and there were two Christians. Paul's problem is not that the civil magistrate handled this. It's not that he wants the church to be handling all property line disputes from now to the end of the world. He simply wants the church to handle property line disputes in an ad hoc manner until we get to the point where 
the commonwealth is, is a Christian commonwealth. So, near the end of 1 Corinthians, the word comes up again, this time having a wider range of application. 1 Corinthians 15.34, Awake to righteousness, and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There it is. So, as far as righteousness goes, uh, be righteous, don't sin. Uh, some people don't have a knowledge of God, and living your life as though God were not there is a matter of shame. God don't never change. He's God. So, as we um, continue on with episode 254 of the podcast, I want to review a book by a, a gent named Johnson, and it's called The Failure of Natural Theology. The Failure of Natural Theology. Now, this is a this is a subject that gets people worked up, and and I want to sort of enter into it very carefully. I I really enjoyed this book, and the author Johnson uh, very carefully walks through a number of the problems that Thomas Aquinas had as he sought to sort of baptize Aristotle's God. So. The philosophy of Aristotle was brought into the Christian world by Thomas Aquinas and uh, sort of made the standard. Uh, Thomas was made the, a doctor of the church, of the Roman Catholic Church, and Thomism, it's called T H O M I S M, Thomism, is sort of the standard philosophical take uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And the, the, but there are difficulties. One of them is that. Aristotle's God was the unmoved mover, and Aristotle's God was not aware of the existence of the world. The world was dependent upon him, but he could not be dependent upon the world in any way, and knowledge of the world would make him dependent on it. The knowledge of the world and the stuff that was changing in the world would alter things within God, and that was. Uh, no bueno as far as Aristotle was concerned. Now, Aquinas is an Orthodox Christian and so knows that God has to know about the world. But what he's trying to do is trim the edges of an Aristotelian approach and sort of tweak the God of Aristotle so that we can have an unmoved mover who somehow knows the world. But in uh, what I think Johnson does in this book is shows convincingly, convincingly to me at any rate, that that is a failed philosophical project. Now, like Johnson, I'm, I'm a Vantillian, I'm a, I'm a presuppositionalist, but I'm a, I'm a natural revelation-friendly presuppositionalist. And we have to distinguish between natural law and natural theology, which Johnson critiques thoroughly, and natural revelation. God speaks in the created order, and God speaks intelligibly in the created order, and we should be able to come to that world, look at that world, and walk away with the knowledge of his divine majesty, as it says in Romans 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. But if you sort of cordon off Revelation, if you say, what can we know about God without reference to Scripture at all? like you. You divorce, you divorce the two the two sources of knowledge. Instead of having your knowledge 
of God from Scripture and your knowledge of God from the world interrelate if you try to separate them and say, what kind of God can we get to just using natural theology? And this is where I think Johnson's book is helpful. If we limit ourselves to the strict methodology of a natural theology, the God we come up with is not recognizably the God of the Bible. And and so consequently, you either have to say, you have to go sort of the biblicist route where you reject natural revelation, uh, which Johnson doesn't do, but you reject natural revelation and just derive everything from Scripture, or you submit to Scripture as the governor or the regulator of what it is we learn from, from natural revelation. So if this isn't your cup of tea, if you think, uh, why, bother, what, why make my head hurt by thinking through issues that, that never occurred to me in the first place, then fine, skip this book. Fine, be, be that way. But if you have a philosophical bent, if you have a theological bent, and you find yourself asking questions like this, whether or not you read these books, if, you've, if you ask these questions of yourself at three in the morning, because you couldn't get to sleep because you were wondering yet again why why this or why that then i think th- i think this book is is going to be a good stimulus for you he knows the uh, work of thomas pretty thoroughly quotes him extensively and works through it systematically so i would um, encourage you if you have any interest in things thomistic to include this book, The Failure of Natural Theology by Johnson, on your reading list. Mm-hmm.